welcome to Footsteps of the Fallen, a Great War podcast with me, battlefield researcher, historian and writer, Matt Dixon. For over 30 years, I've been visiting the cemeteries, memorials and battlefields of the First World War. And in this series of podcasts, I'd like to take you on a journey through France, Belgium and further afield and tell you the stories of some of the places I've visited and the stories of the men who lie as the dead of the Great War. So pack up your kit bag, pour yourself a cuppa, and join me as we walk the well-trodden paths on the battlefields, following in the footsteps of the fallen. It's a pleasure to have your company. So welcome to this Christmas edition of Footsteps of the Fallen. And of course, before we begin, I wish every single one of you who's listening to this podcast the most fabulous season's greetings and a very happy Christmas. I hope that uh, all of you had the opportunity in these crazy lockdown times and times of uncertainty to spend some quality time with your family and friends and loved ones and enjoy everything that Christmas should be about. And of course, I hope that uh, Santa was kind to you and uh, brought a uh, large collection of First World War books to be poured over as we head into 2022 and of course this podcast is being released on boxing day and i hope that um there's a bit of a peace and quiet wherever you are maybe a nice uh, cup of tea and a bit of christmas cake and thank you very much for joining me for our last installment of first world war military history for 2022 Uh, we're going to be back in the new year the first sunday of 2022 with the next episode of footsteps of the fallen but wherever you are and uh, whether this is the first time you've listened to one of our podcasts or you're one of our old sweats who's coming back for another episode thank you very much indeed for your support and it's a pleasure to have your company So where are we in today's journey through the footsteps of the fallen? Well, our journey today begins in the small county market town of Wellingborough up in Northamptonshire. Uh, For a um, period of uh, about uh, two years, I was uh, on uh, secondment to the police at uh, Wellingborough Police Station. And uh, so it's a a small uh, market town in uh, rural Northamptonshire. And the area that I uh, used to work used to cover some of the the lovely villages around uh, this part of the county places like Rushton, Earthlingborough, Highham, Ferrers, uh, that sort of really is uh, very pleasant. And uh, the small uh, village of Rushton, aside from being associated with Rushton and Diamonds Football Club, is um, has a great war connection with it being the home place of Lieutenant Colonel the Reverend Bernard Van, VC, MC and Bar, and he's a, a um, very celebrated local hero, understandably very well commemorated in the village itself. But just up the road from the police station in Wellingborough was a small auction house. Um, It was one of these sort of like a a kind of provincial auction house, a very weird and eclectic collection of products. But what always uh, piqued uh, my interest whenever possible was on a Thursday where they would have the... um, general and historical sale and they used to have a lot um, of uh, really interesting bits of world war one ephemera used to come up for auction on a on a fairly regular basis i did buy a, a few bits and pieces um whilst i was there but our story really relates to a miscellaneous box of bric-a-brac that i uh, bought at the auction house one day and it was one of those ones where um there was one single item in the box that I particularly wanted. I can't actually remember what it was, but it was um you had to buy the entire box of all the assorted detritus and debris that came with it in order to get the box. And um I duly won the auction. I think I paid about 10 quid in the end for for this box. I was uh, very very happy and I duly uh, took it back to uh, my uh, lodgings in Wellingborough and sort of had a rummage through the box itself. And as I was going through the box, at the very bottom of it, I found two large brown envelopes, which were absolutely stuffed full of bits of paper. And when I took these uh, things out, there was a remarkable collection of letters and various documents and things like that. And it was a very um, eclectic and really quite extraordinary collection of items. And what I found inside this box actually made the value of the box itself far 
far more than £10. Clearly, um, whoever was doing the auction hadn't really looked through all of the um, bits of paper. I suppose it's not uh, in any way unsurprising because there was a huge amount of things in there. But once I was going through, I, I sort of started rummaging through and, and there was large amounts of personal correspondence. And uh, one always feels slightly uh, guilty about uh, reading uh, private letters, even though they were dated from you know many, many years ago. I suspect that uh, all of the people who wrote these letters would uh, have long been dead by the time that this came into my possession. One of the really remarkable things was um, there was a collection of uh, letters that were written throughout uh, the Second World War um, from a lady called Enid, who was uh, writing, I think by deduction, it was probably to her sister, um, talking at length about the problems of uh, rationing and living in wartime London. And um, I found as part of these uh, letters a um, a collection of um, checks, bank checks, that had been obviously returned to the person who wrote the checks was this lady uh, Enid and um, I think this was a sort of tradition back in in times that once the check had been cashed it was actually returned to the person who wrote it and attached uh, stapled to one of the checks was um, an invoice from uh, Harrods and it concerned the um, storage in Harrods freezers in the Harrods food hall of two mink coats belonging to this lady Enid for the duration of hostilities during World War Two, and um, obviously it's not quite what I was expecting to find um, and apparently from talking to somebody who knows far more about these things than I do that the um, ideal way to store fur coats is to put them in a freezer and the well-to-do of London during World War Two paid many of the uh, famous department stores to store fur coats in the freezers and this lady as I say had obviously done this in the freezers at Harrods. Amongst the other bits and pieces that were in this box were um, down at the bottom a small collection of letters that were clearly very very old and they were tied together with a a beautiful purple ribbon and uh, when I opened them uh, they dated back to 1850 and the handwriting was this sort of microscopic copper plate handwriting obviously written in fountain pen and um, I made it sort of my mission over the following month as that's how long it took me to go through them to sort of read these letters and what I discovered was that I actually had a remarkable piece of history in my hands. The letters um, were predominantly an exchange between a man by the name of Harry who was out in uh, South Africa and uh, with a, um, I, I think it was probably a cousin of his um, who was based in London discussing the various affairs of government, uh, particularly in relation to the government of South Africa. And one of the letters um, made particular reference to a ceremony that the um, that Harry and his uh, wife had attended the previous week. And in these letters, uh, Harry, who was uh, writing to um, back to London, um, explained that there had been a ceremony to change the name of a particular township in South Africa to honour his wife. Uh, his wife, um, through the letters, uh, discovered her name was um, Juana, and um, I think she was. Uh, I think she was probably Spanish. And what really this led me to was uh, the remarkable discovery that the township that he was referring to was Ladysmith, because the letters were written by none other than Sir Harry Smith, and he was the governor of the Cape colony in South Africa and went on to become the Governor General of South Africa. And obviously I've heard of uh, Lady Smith, I've, I've never visited, but it was a remarkable piece of history. And I have no idea why these ended up in um, this parcel of letters. Um, I still have them in my possession and um, it's um, they're very, very interesting, as I say, but it's written in this sort of microscopic copper plate handwriting is very much of a of an era but they've survived remarkably well intact considering the distance that was involved in transporting mail by sea from South Africa back to London. The final item that I came across in the bottom of this box was a beautiful leather bound book and um, I, I love books I have far more books than um, my wife is happy about but I particularly love 
old books. I think those with the the beautiful sort of leather bound covers and the embossed spines on them. And in the bottom of uh, this box was a book called Posset's English Wildflowers. And it was um, a, a lovely book about, as I said, fairly obviously about English wildflowers, some beautiful sort of, um, I presume they were probably watercolour illustrations. But inside the book, when I looked inside the front cover, I out fell a field service postcard. Now, these were one of the standard pieces of uh, communication tools that that um, soldiers and officers had to communicate with loved ones from the front during World War One, and it really what it was was a a small sort of beige um, beige yellow coloured postcard size document that had a kind of pro, pro forma series of statements on it, and all the sender was able to do was uh, cross out various bits on it and then send it on to to the recipient and it basically said um you know i am i am i'm well i've been injured i'm in hospital um i have heard from you or i've received your letter etc etc or i've not heard from you for a long period of time very perfunctory and um you know sort of no room for any form of sentiment at all but also included in this um uh, book was a couple of Christmas cards and a letter. And most bizarrely of all, I found what looked like, I suppose the easiest way to describe it is probably as one would imagine, a pressed flower. Um, but what it was, it was not a flower, it was actually a cigarette packet. The cigarettes were of a brand called Con Amore, or obviously Italian for with love. And um, from reading the letters, the letters were sent from a lady by the name of Phoebe, and she lived in uh, just outside Godalming down in Surrey. And from sort of uh, a bit of detective work and from um, the field postcard, it was possible to deduce with almost a certainty who the recipient of these um, Christmas cards were. His name was Captain Hugh Fraser Brigstock, and he was a member of the 7th, 8th King's Own Scottish Borderers. And the Christmas card itself was dated 1916. And um, I would... I guess I'm going to hazard a guess, and it, and it is a guess, but I, I do wonder whether the um, cigarettes or the cigarette packet was maybe a gift from Phoebe to this uh, captain who was serving over in France at the time. And the Conamore brand of cigarettes was uh, very unique um, in the uh, time of the Great War because one of the things that they did is they offered the opportunity for a loved one to um, get regimental cigarettes that is to say that there were cigarettes that were embossed with the crest of the particular regiment um, that they wanted there were over 200 different regiments that uh, they could press um, the regimental crest onto these cigarettes the main stockist of Connemore cigarettes was a, a tobacco merchant on Lower Regent Street by the name of I. Markovich. And um, the Connemore brand sort of um, played into the hands of this kind of sentimentality. If you look at the um, any sort of contemporary footage from World War One, you will see that pretty much everything is this cloud of cigarette smoke. Everybody was smoking and, and the Connemore brand uh, played into this. Um, obviously, cigarettes were known as the fuel of the British army. And um, I say this brand particularly sort of played into this uh, sentimentality and this uh, idea of uh, sending cigarettes as a gift to a sweetheart. And indeed, the the advertising slogan for these particular cigarettes was in trench, mess, billet or on ship, every smoke will remind him of you, the giver. One of the things that I don't know about the relationship between Phoebe and Hugh is is exactly what their relationship was. Whether they were they were lovers, they were friends, maybe they were brother and sister. I really don't know. But what I do like to imagine, perhaps, is that um, these cigarettes were sent out to Hugh to enjoy at Christmas. 1916, and hopefully they brought a little bit of comfort and a little bit of cheer from home. The sad reality of um, what happened is that if Hugh got to enjoy these on Christmas Day, um, 
some 16 days later, he was to die in combat. And uh, I'm going to come back to what happened to him because it's a remarkably sad story later in this podcast. Christmas, obviously, for us is uh, generally quite a, a happy time. And I often do wonder what Christmas must have been like for those men who were in the trenches at the time of World War One. And one of the things that we are extremely fortunate about is that the Imperial War Museum has a remarkable archive of interviews that were done with veterans to record their particular memories. And there are many references to Christmas, um, particularly Christmas during the war and what it was like in Christmas in the trenches and that sort of thing. And it provides a really sort of fascinating, um, interesting overview of what Christmas was like. And sadly, one of the things that um, sort of history has done is it's kind of skewed our perception about Christmas at war. The Christmas truce is probably the most, or certainly one of the most written about events um, of the First World War itself. And um, I'm sure many of you will please know that I have no intention of mentioning the F word in relation to what did or didn't happen on Christmas Day in 1914. I mean, what's obvious, and, and it is quite clear that there there were in certain places, there was a, a I suppose you'd call it a ceasefire, and there were examples of fraternisation between uh, British and German soldiers. Indeed, there is now, um, by uh, Plug Street Wood in Belgium, there is a, a memorial that stands at the side of a field by the, uh, the fabulous organisation, the Khaki Chums, who spent... Uh, a Christmas in uh, 2014 back in the fields in a sort of trench that had been dug to kind of recreate the moment of the Christmas truce. But there's so much more to what happened at Christmas than just this idea of games of football and fraternisation and that sort of thing. And that's where the archive really is kind of adds value to uh, historical research because this is first-hand accounts of people who were actually there at the time. I'm sure that many of you who listen to this podcast will, of course, know who I am referring to when I mentioned Professor Peter Doyle. And uh, he has produced uh, this year a truly remarkable book, um, which is an in-depth study of what was called The Princess Mary Tin. And in 1914, uh, the Princess Mary of, of Great Britain set up a fund. And this was um, done to provide a gift for every man who was serving at the front or who was at sea um, that Christmas. And um, I, I have uh, a couple of these tins. I have um, ones actually that came from my family. And I'd love to know the sort of the, the history of what happened to them after they came back from the war. But there was a man by the name of James Naylor, who served in the Royal Field Artillery, and he recalled receiving the Princess Mary tin. And he said, it was a gift box containing a message and card in it. There were two packets, one packet of cigarettes and one packet of tobacco. I've still got mine. It's still in its canvas case and the cigarettes and tobacco are still there intact. Of course, I didn't smoke in those days. And that's why I suppose I kept it. If you're not aware of the book, I will post a link to it on the podcast recommended reads page on our website, which is uh, www.footstepsofthefallen.com. In 2017, I had a very, very serious accident on Christmas Eve, and it uh, ended up that I had to spend uh, Christmas and New Year in hospital. And uh, I'd say it's the first time and uh, hopefully the only time that I'll ever spend Christmas Day in hospital. And I have to say that um, I, I doff my proverbial hat to the NHS and the Salvation Army because they did everything they possibly could to make um, Christmas as enjoyable as it possibly could be. There was a brass band and there were carol singers and everybody got a present and uh, they'd uh, made a real effort to kind of decorate the ward. And of course, the staff who were there were giving up their Christmas days to look after people uh, deserve the absolute Credit, um, but during um, the World War One, obviously there were many, many men who spent uh, Christmas in hospital or in either in France or in uh, back in the UK if they'd uh, had a, a blighty one or a wound that was serious enough to get them transported back to the United Kingdom. And um, one of the uh, archives at the Imperial War Museum is from a lady called Margaret calendar and she was a nurse at a military hospital back in the UK and she recalled Christmas as follows. 
This was my happy time. I did all the decorations for my ward anyhow. Two Christmases I was there and did that. The other nurses helped me, you know, but I had to devise it all. We had very big mantelpieces and in the winter time I made a cottage with snow on top and light inside windows and so on. And on the dark blue blinds I made a night sky. I had little polar bears and things in front and snow and little huts too. And I put stars on the dark window and I think all the lights were snowdrops. And it's obviously lovely that um, people made this effort to um, sort of try and make Christmas as bearable as possible for wounded soldiers. And uh, those men that were in hospital were uh, generally treated very well. The public were extremely kind. Uh, a lady by the name of uh, Louis Johnson, who was uh, a medical officer working at a hospital up in Leeds, um, recalled uh, the men receiving Christmas presents. And she said, people would kindly come in and give me little presents for the men or money to buy them presents. I used to go into Leeds and make a little gift parcel for every man on my ward. Usually it was a packet of cigarettes, tobacco pouch, perhaps a scarf, if they were going out or an ounce of tobacco or something like that, and give every little man a present on Christmas morning, every time and every year. As I mentioned, when I was in hospital, there were uh, sort of um, uh, carols came in and the Salvation Army band came in and that sort of thing. And it was it was really rather splendid. And um, there are many records of uh, men recording that Christmas was a time where possible for sort of concert parties and um, sing-alongs and uh, that sort of thing. And um, one uh, sailor, uh, a member of the Royal Marines, uh, recalled one Christmas that he spent on board a ship in 1917. And it sounds like a truly ghastly experience and the ship he was on was struck a very very severe storm and a um, wave hit the ship from the side on and it breached the portholes that contained the ship's stores of food and all of the um, food stocks were found sort of floating around in seawater in the um, galley or the, or the pantry I'm not quite sure what the naval expression for the storeroom is but um, it meant that all of the supplies were ruined. So their Christmas dinner consisted of sort of like um, tinned products, tinned pork and some salted rice. And they said it was a very, very miserable experience. But to try and make the most of it, a, a concert was organised to be held on deck on board this ship on Christmas Day. And of course, there was still this storm raging at the time. And somehow the sailors on board the ship had managed to find a piano from somewhere. And the piano was brought out onto the deck where it was tied with a piece of rope to uh, a stanchion and then one particularly big wave hit the ship and it caused the ship to roll and the piano broke free of the rope that was um, holding it in place and the um, the Royal Marine reported that um, the concert ended up actually with uh, more like a pantomime because it consisted of uh, large numbers of sailors chasing a piano up and down the side of a warship uh, trying to catch it as it was rolling down the gangways on the wheels with the motion of the ocean. There's a famous expression that an army marches on its stomach. And when you look at some of the sort of personal reflections of men who wrote about their experiences in World War One, the quality of the food they received um, would uh, play a significant role into how enjoyable their Christmas was. For any of you who listened to um, the Christmas podcast that we did last year, um, you will remember that I mentioned about a container ship manifest that I discovered whilst doing some research in the archives that contained a, a list of all of the items that had been put on board a ship that was going from uh, Folkestone over to uh, Boulogne. And um, on the ship, this uh, left at the uh, in the first week of December, it contained five 150 tonnes of Christmas puddings that were in tins and were sent out to men at the front line to perhaps give it a little bit of a, a taste of home for those who were unfortunate enough to have to be spend uh, Christmas Day in the trenches. There was a man by the name of Frederick Higgins, who was a Lance Corporal in the London Regiment. And he uh, recalled in his uh, recollections after the war that he, he actually had very fond memories of tinned Christmas pudding. And it was a really, really important part of his Christmas. And he went on to say, I had four Christmases at war. And the only thing I can remember about the Christmases was that we had Christmas pudding every Christmas day. We had a ration of Christmas pudding, but what else we had, I really couldn't tell you. 
Christmas pudding, however, has always remained in my mind. It didn't matter where you was. There was a ration of Christmas pudding for you every Christmas. I'd scoop it out with a spoon out of the tins. They were big tins, you see. They held about seven pounds. I suppose they were all specially made. If somebody said, you've got to have a bit of Christmas pudding, no doubt I would, I must say, speaking for myself. We had Christmas pudding every Christmas. I can't remember what else we had to eat, what the dinner was, but my goodness, we certainly had afters. There's a famous story that came from the Admiralty of a uh, communique that was sent from a British warship. And the officer who was commanding the warship had received a uh, reprimand from the Admiralty because he was uh, seemed to be failing to adopt the policy of using uh, carrier pigeons, homing pigeons, to carry messages from his ship back to shore. And it was noted um, during his review that he'd had pigeons on board his ship for almost three months and had failed to send a single message. And he duly received a, a sort of dressing down, I suppose, as part of his uh, performance review. And uh, this was in um, the middle of December. And sure enough, uh, two days later, a, uh, a pigeon arrived at the naval base that had been dispatched from um, the ship in question and um, the pigeon was uh, sort of received by uh, uh, an NCO and the message was detached from the small canister on its leg and was hurriedly rushed down to intelligence to see what the ship had to say. In fact, what actually the uh, the officer had said was, um, you will be pleased to know that I'm having Christmas pudding and custard for my dinner tonight. And I don't think what he realised actually was that all um, military messages that came from pigeons were sent through to naval intelligence at the Admiralty. And when this was received, and uh, the next time he was back on shore, he was summoned to his sea, his uh, senior officers at the Admiralty, and he received uh, an almighty rollicking for uh, his abuse of the uh, pigeon postal service. But he was for the rest of the war, known simply as Captain Custard. Sitting on the floor of my dining room next to my sideboard, I have two large earthenware pots, and they're things that I'm really rather fond of. They are First World War rum jars, and um, every or every man rather was entitled to a, a, a ration of a few centiliters of rum every single day, and the earthenware flagons are stamped with the letters S. R.D. on them. It's one of those uh, strange things that no one's ever, I think, actually really been able to explain what S.R.D. stands for. Some people say it's uh, service rum diluted. Uh, some say it's the supply rations depot. The one that I particularly like, actually, I think, is uh, where the soldiers used to say that S.R.D. stood for seldom reaches destination. But um, whatever the, it stands for, one of the things that you find very often when you read personal narratives is there's a lot of mention of alcohol. And um, the soldiers, I think, uh, with the sort of stress that they went through of combat and the strain of being in the trenches, uh, often uh, when the opportunity arose to consume alcohol, it was something that was uh, embraced and engaged in by many, many soldiers indeed. And there's a couple of lovely stories that came up about uh, alcohol, particularly around the consumption of alcohol at Christmas time. One particular story that I, I found uh, very interesting to read was by uh, uh, the fabulously named Marmaduke Walkington, who was a, a, an NCO in the machine gun corps, and he paid a, a real price for a, a bottle of alcohol that he managed to obtain. And he uh, recalled that he was working in the mess, and at uh, Christmas there was a, a sort of dinner party was held where all of the sergeants and officers uh, came into the officers' mess and he was um, there. They, I think they were sort of acting as waiters or something like that and he said that they found themselves tucked away into a corner and uh, they were desperate for a drink and one of them managed to um, obtain a bottle of alcohol and the only thing that they could find it was uh, cherry whiskey and um, they um, sat in the corner of this uh, dinner that was going on and somehow between uh, the three of them the entire bottle of cherry whiskey got drunk over the course of this Christmas evening and he said that uh, he actually found himself in a whole world of trouble um, because it turned out this is a very special bottle of drink that had been presented to the company commander by the brigadier as a Christmas present and unfortunately the, the three men had actually swiped the lot and for the rest of the war uh, Walkington was always known as CW or cherry whiskey which became his nickname from that point onwards. 
For many men who weren't used to drinking, the daily rum ration was something that um, some found, uh, I think, quite difficult to take. It was quite sort of potent, punchy sort of stuff. Um, But one of the things that men looked forward to, particularly around Christmas, was the opportunity to have a a nice warming drink, perhaps take the edge off the cold and take the cold out of your bones. And a man by the name of Edmund Williams, who served in the Royal Fusiliers, recalled uh, an incident that happened on the Western Front in 1917. And he had been promised by the uh, officers that um, there was going to be a nice warming Christmas drink available for the men um, at the end of the day. And he recalls the story as follows. We had our Christmas dinner and then the troops dispersed. It had been snowing and there was a heavy frost The snow had half melted and had frozen and the slopes of the hill were very nearly impassable. The duck boards had to be crawled on, otherwise those people who'd had too much liquor couldn't have stood upright without falling. So it was said that those of us who stayed in camp would be given a special treat of having a milk and rum punched served to us. We were very excited about this. So about a hundred of us stayed in the camp and duly the Dixies arrived containing the milk and rum punch. The officer in charge took one sip and promptly spat it out. The cooks, who were all gloriously drunk, had substituted the demijohns of rum with demijohns of whale oil. So only one out of the four Dixies, I think, had any rum in it at all. The rest only had milk and whale oil. So none of us got any rum punch at all. We were really most disappointed. For many people, the ubiquitous turkey is an essential part of any Christmas dinner. And of course, this was exactly the same for troops in the trenches. And of course, whilst we would normally roast a turkey, the um, war, of course, meant that that was probably wasn't really possible. And they say that necessity is the mother of all invention. And a man by the name of Morris Greenwood um, recalled that he and his comrades managed to obtain a turkey that was, uh, I would say, borrowed in inverted commas from a French farmhouse. He said, first Christmas we had, somebody managed to get hold of a turkey. I don't know where they got it from, but it was probably best not to ask too many questions. We made a trough in the ground, put a fire in it, and then put some iron bars across the top, and we laid the turkey on the top of it. It was almost like a sort of barbecue, you know, and absolutely delicious it was too. And I think really that um, Greenwood was obviously sort of one of the lucky ones. For those men who were behind the lines on uh, Christmas Day, there was obviously a distinct possibility they may get a Christmas dinner of some sort um, or some kind of decent meal. But for men who were manning the front line trenches, many of them were really not so lucky. Unless there were parcels from home, then rations and food on Christmas Day would generally be the standard army rations. Uh, A British officer, uh, 2nd Lieutenant William Richards, recalled one of his Christmas meals. He said, Christmas 1916 was an awful winter. My Christmas dinner was a tin of bully beef, which I dug out of the snow because it had been discarded by the previous occupants of the gun pit. The cook, together with other people, the commissariat, the ration lorry couldn't come because the roads were in such a state on account of the ice and snow. And so my Christmas dinner was a tin of bully beef and my servant made a hash out of it. Yes, you know what I mean. He simply just fried it up in a mess tin. That was my Christmas in 1916. One of the problems I think that the whole story of the Christmas truce in 1914 has given us is that we kind of have this perception that fighting stopped on Christmas Day and uh, nothing in fact could be further from the truth itself. Uh, A man by the name of Walter Hare who was a private in the West Yorkshire Regiment uh, explains what Christmas was like. They used to say that the fighting stopped for Christmas. Well not where we were it didn't so there were no celebrations I think it was a bit quiet. There wasn't much shelling going on and that kind of thing, but there wasn't a stop. There wasn't a halt or anything like that. The shelling went on occasionally and you'd still have machine gun and rifle fire, but I suppose it was a bit what you would call quiet. 
One of the great misconceptions I think that uh, people have about the First World War and particularly the time that men spent in trenches was that all of their time was spent in combat. In fact, the reality of uh, life in the trenches was really very different with the exception of sort of um, offensives or, or large battles. Much of men's time in frontline trenches actually was incredibly boring and very, very hard physical work and in fact actual fighting really only took up a very small percentage of a soldier's time whenever men were in trenches there were always jobs that needed to be done um you know trench repairs there were kit inspections there was um sentry duties and uh, and things like that and one of the things i think that um men particularly disliked uh, very much about time in the trenches was the occasion to go out on a trench raid. Raiding parties would generally go out at night and it was an opportunity to go out into no man's land and perhaps conduct a reconnaissance of the enemy's trenches or positions to see the, str- the state or strength of the defences opposite them. Uh, many times, actually, the intention was to go and capture a prisoner simply so that the uh, the regiment could know who was actually facing them in the trenches opposite. But there's no doubt whatsoever that trench raids were an exceptionally dangerous event for men to be involved in. And um, it wasn't really a case of um, asking for volunteers. You were simply told that you are going on a trench raid and it would usually be uh, an officer and NCOs and a group of other ranks, uh, private soldiers who would go out in the dead of night. And they would generally sort of dispense with um, kits. Uh, many of them would carry rifles with bayonets. But trench raiding parties established a, a sort of almost medieval collection of weapons that they used to take with them there were clubs and coshes and uh, bits of wood with barbed wire wrapped around the end of it. Um, some men would uh, carry specially adapted knives uh, that uh, sort of doubled as kind of knuckle dusters. And what they were expecting really was to try and approach a German trench. And if they were able to do that without uh, being seen by the various sentries, they would rush the trench and try wherever possible to grab a prisoner and then drag the prisoner back across no man's land. It was a really, really dangerous experience for um, men to go through. And when you read sort of battalion war diaries and things like that, you only have to look at the casualty return figures whenever there are stories of raids that get mentioned to see that it really was not a, a very appealing prospect to have to be involved in one of these raids. And I remember reading in a uh, battalion war diary a record from the Hampshire Regiment about a trench raid that was carried out near Armand in uh, 1915 and uh, the raid was led by uh, uh, an officer with uh, three NCOs and about 30 men and they went out and they raided a a German strongpoint opposite them and to their surprise they found that actually the trench had been abandoned and on going into a German dugout they discovered that it was an officer's dugout and it was filled to the brim with uh, food stuff and exotic tinned goods and things like that and they recalled that actually they brought back large quantities of fresh meat they found pheasants and ducks and beef and pork and uh, so not all manner of uh, luxury tinned goods and they also reported a, a very large collection of some exceptionally good cigars that were found in this dugout and uh, these were brought back and probably shared out amongst the men with the food and um, a sort of reward for uh, a I suppose you call it a successful raid in one sense but um, obviously they failed to capture any prisoners. One of the things I said that the reasons why people did trench raids is that there was a a real desire to sort of find out who was opposite you in the trenches, which regiment it particularly was. And if you remember back at the beginning of the podcast, we were talking about um, the uh, Connemore cigarettes and the correspondence between a lady called Phoebe and Captain Hugh Brigstock of the 7th, 8th King's Own Scottish Borderers. And I mentioned that there was a sad end to this tale because Brigstock was to lose his life on the night of the 10th of January 1917 so just uh, two and a half weeks after Christmas where he'd uh, probably received say this present of these cigarettes from 
England. And when you read the Battalion War Diary, it explains what happened to Captain Brigstock that evening. Uh, he was a man who had uh, been promoted from the ranks. He started the war in 1914 uh, as a private, and he was uh, eventually promoted um, in uh, November 1914 to a second lieutenant. He worked his way up, became a lieutenant, and then was then promoted to uh, captain. He was actually acting captain at early 1917. And he uh, came to the King's Own Scottish borders as a replacement. He had previously been with the Queen's Royal West Surrey Regiment. And um, what it is reported that um, on his uh, first night in the trenches, he was very keen to find out who was uh, holding the lines opposite them at the time. So he went out into no man's land and he took uh, two soldiers with him to go and um, raid the German trenches opposite to see if they could gather some intelligence about which German regiment happened to be holding the trenches. And uh, whilst they were out in no man's land, it's not entirely sure what happens, but it's I think they came across a German sentry and they managed to grab hold of him and uh, there was a sort of scuffle ensued in no man's land and they sort of frog marched this German back towards the British lines. The problem was that uh, there had been a breakdown in communication and uh, some of the sentries who were on duty in the British line didn't know that Captain Brigstock and uh, the other soldiers had gone out into no man's land. And what happened in the dead of night is they saw a German soldier coming towards their trenches and um, the war diary reports that a warning was shouted out by the sentry and no reply was received. And the British sentry on seeing a German soldier coming towards him and receiving no reply to his warning, opened fire with his Lewis machine gun and shot the German soldier dead. Unfortunately, during this action, he also killed Captain Bridstock and seriously wounded the other men who were involved in the patrol. What I wanted to do was look at two men who shared the same surname of Christmas, who both lost their lives in trench raids. They were very different men to each other. They had very different backgrounds and very different upbringings, but they both lost their lives in service. And both of them, as I said, in trench raids or as a result of a trench raid. The first was a man by the name of Captain Bernard Lovell Christmas. And he came from a well-to-do London family, a very wealthy family, went to public school, uh, was studying classics at Christ's College, Cambridge. And uh, he was a captain in the 1st 3rd London Regiment, the Royal Fusiliers, and lost his life in May 1916. By contrast, Private Walter Christmas was a member of the 6th Battalion of the Lincolnshire Regiment. By contrast to Bernard Christmas, Walter Christmas had a very, very hard upbringing in the slums of East London. His family were in and out of the workhouse in desperate, desperate poverty. Really, the only similarity between the two men is they both died and they both lost their lives during trench raids. Bernard Christmas was born in 1894 and he was the son of a very wealthy family of uh, cotton importers. They lived a, a very privileged upbringing in a, a beautiful house in London's Belgravia and uh, his upbringing was one of, um, of of wealth and good education. He was uh, educated uh, privately, he went to a, a prep school in London before he headed up to Repton School up in Derbyshire where he studied and at, on finishing his studies at uh, Repton, he gained a place to read classics at Christ's College, Cambridge. For reasons that I'm not entirely certain of, he didn't take up the um, uh, opportunity to go and study at Cambridge. And he was shown on the census as uh, living with his family um, in uh, London's Belgravia and was supporting himself through private means. When I was looking at uh, Lovell Christmas, he seems to have been a fairly sort of um, industrious chap because I discovered in 1912 that he had filed a patent application for a game that he had invented. The game was called The Magnet Game. And as part of the records, there was a, um, a sort of a sketch that he had produced of 
this game. And the easiest way I can describe what he was trying to patent was it um, looked rather like a sort of um, uh, an A-frame with what we might uh, associate nowadays as a, a whiteboard on it. And um, the whiteboard was covered with a uh, maze made of a series of pegs. And at the top of the board was a, a slot in the board with a, a lip on it. And the aim was to use a magnet um, held in one hand on the back of the board and to negotiate a metal disc through this maze and successfully get it into the slot at the top of the board. And this was done whilst uh, blindfolded, um, which I'm not sure I quite understand how that would work, given that it was a, a maze. But um, as I said, he, he submitted a patent application for it. Um, there's no record as to whether the patent was granted or not. He was a member of the officers' training corps, and at the outbreak of war, he immediately enlisted into the army, and he uh, served in various regiments in the Royal Fusiliers. But it was in 1916 that he was uh, posted to the 1st, 3rd Battalion, the London Regiment, the Royal Fusiliers. It was the City of London Regiment, and he um, served with them throughout uh, 1916. And in early May 1916, they were involved in a raid on the German lines opposite and they were holding a section of line on the north end of the Somme battlefield. And the raid itself was designed to uh, gain intelligence uh, about which German regiment in particular was holding the line opposite them and um, six officers and 48 men were involved in the raid and it had been meticulously planned. Uh, there was a gap in the German wire that was going to be exploited and the um, aim was as I say to identify the regiment and hopefully to capture prisoners as well and um, in the dead of night the men ditched all of their equipment and they donned um, sort of dark coloured clothing. Men would uh, cover their faces with charcoal from the braziers and things like that to try and camouflage their skin tone. And they set out into no man's land. As I said, things had been meticulously planned. But on the night in question when the raid party went out, the weather was bad and they very, very quickly became disorientated. And instead of making their way towards the uh, gap in the German wire that had been Seen, they swung off in the wrong direction and uh, they um, soon became entangled in uh, the German barbed wire that was uh, in front of the trenches and um, obviously was uh, not in any way, shape or form cut. And as they were struggling to free themselves, it's obviously alerted German uh, sentries that there was a, a raiding party going on and the Germans opened fire and um, many men of the um, of the patrol were um, were wounded during this um, action. And uh, of course, they were trapped on the barbed wire. And this, this barbed wire only took one sort of snag on your clothing and you were effectively a sitting duck for German marksmen. And uh, those that uh, managed to extricate themselves, uh, they were fired on all the way uh, back through uh, no man's land. And it was during this retreat as the men were trying to get back to the British lines that uh, Captain Christmas was shot through the back by a German rifle bullet and the bullet went through by the edge of his spine and came out the front of his chest and uh, he was obviously very very seriously wounded and was taken to a casualty clearing station where he sadly died uh, two days after the raid had taken place. His parents erected a memorial plaque to him in St Agnes's church on the edge of Belgravia, which sadly was destroyed during the Second World War, during the Blitz. And he now lies buried in Henu churchyard on the Somme. By contrast to the privileged upbringing of um, Bernard Christmas, Private Walter Christmas, who served in the 6th Battalion, the Lincolnshire Regiment, grew up at the rough end of the social spectrum. He was uh, from a family of uh, leather workers based in the east end of London. And when I was looking at the family, I came across a reference to the job title I've never heard of it before called a pure worker. And um, when I started looking at what this was, it was uh, possibly the most unpleasant of all Edwardian 
London, Victorian London jobs. It was involved in the leather tanning industry and Pure was the name that was given to the mixture of dog feces and urine that was rubbed into leather by hand to help uh, condition it and remove uh, bits of sinew and bits of fat from the uh, leather before it could be uh, conditioned. A really awful job and um, obviously um, you know fairly unskilled and, and very badly paid. And um, Walter Christmas grew up with his family, I say, in the slums in the east end of London. They were on the edge of uh, Whitechapel and Shoreditch, that sort of way. And um, when you look back through the records, you can find references to them uh, in and out of the workhouse in the early part of the 1900s. It was a very, very tough, a very difficult sort of upbringing. And um, Walter Christmas was conscripted into the army in 1917 and uh, he went out to France, arrived in France in January 1918 at the age of 19. And as I said, he was serving in the 6th Battalion, the Lincolnshire Regiment, which uh, I suppose a little bit unusual for a man that came from East London, but the casualties of 1916 and 1917 meant that uh, there was a real need for soldiers all over, and uh, it meant that uh, men were posted wherever they were needed to fill the gaps caused by the massive amounts of casualties that had been uh, incurred by the British Army during the offensives on the Somme and the fighting at Ypres throughout 1917. When you look at the war diary for the uh, regiment, there was a raid that was involved on the German trenches and the Lincolns found themselves in the fields to just north of a place called the Bois Hugo, uh, which is on the battlefield at Luz in Artois. Um, when you look at the uh, trench map for that particular area, it shows that actually the British and German lines ran into each other. There's no no man's land between them. That you literally the British line stops, and the next uh, to it, the uh, red line shows the German trenches. And really, this was a, a situation where. Um, the battlefield, the trenches, the frontline trenches had changed hands so many times that there was no kind of difference between them. There was no no man's land in between them. And the trench really would be separated by what was called a trench block. And this could be anything from uh, sandbags and wood um, through to uh, perhaps more robust barricades that were um, uh, put into the trenches, uh, even sometimes on occasion, if it was in the middle of a battle, dead bodies could be piled up to use as a barricade. And um, it was one of those uh, sort of strange locations where neither side really knew quite what to do about how to um, sort of uh, take back these trenches. So there would be uh, sort of daily uh, situations where men would throw grenades at each other over the barricades and that sort of thing. But the Lincolns came up with a plan that they were going to attack the German trenches they're going to raid the German trenches, drive them out and then establish uh, a series of uh, barricades through the frontline trenches and regain possession of them. And there was then going to be parties who were involved in digging new trenches to reconnect everything back up and hopefully sort of develop some sense of normality back into the line and develop a, a more significant and sizable gap between themselves and the Germans next door. The raid itself was due to take place on the 2nd of April 1918 during the night and it was a very big raid. There were 12 officers and 180 soldiers who were involved in it. Um, obviously the uh, German lines around this particular part of the battlefield at Luce were very well fortified and there was, um, say, literally right next to each other. So it was quite an ambitious plan and um, the raid duly set off at 2am uh, under the cover of darkness, and um, by all accounts, it was uh, a fairly disastrous operation. The uh, Lincoln suffered very, very heavy casualties indeed during the fighting, and uh, many men were killed or wounded. And one of those, unfortunately, who lost his life was Private Walter Christmas. Um, a, a party, apparently, of uh, the raiding uh, troops once again got caught on German barbed wire and uh, were sort of easy targets for German marksmen. And uh, Private Walter Christmas say sadly he lost his life at the age of 19 on those fields. He'd been in France for less than three months uh, when he went uh, into this particular action that was sadly to cost him his life. He lies to this day buried in a Philosoph Cemetery at Mazengarb on, uh, on the uh, edge of the Luz battlefield. 
It was when I visited Philosoph British Cemetery that I came across Christmas's grave, and it's really what gave me the idea for this particular podcast. And um, one of the things that I have done whilst I was uh, doing the research was looked at some of the other names of uh, soldiers who lost their lives during World War One, and uh, there were eight men by the name of Santa who were killed. It's a very common name in the Indian army. There were 10 Rudolphs, eight clauses, and one man called Presence who lost his life. But it was in a recent trip to uh, the battlefields when uh, I was walking around the battlefield at Neuve-Chapelle that I had cause to visit the cemetery at Le Trou aid post near Fleurbay up in France. It's one of my favourite places to visit. It's a beautiful cemetery. It has a, a, um, a very sort of English uh, feel to it. There's a small moat that runs around it with the weeping willow trees and a beautiful entrance uh, location. And I was walking up and down the headstones having a look when I came across a headstone to the fabulously named Private Bertie Snowball. Bertie Snowball was born on the 7th of May 1887 at Bailden in Yorkshire. He was the son of uh, farm workers James Snowball and his wife um, Elizabeth. Um, the Snowball family themselves are actually a very, very large um, family indeed. And um, some branches of the family actually were members of the landed gentry, very wealthy landowners. But um, obviously this uh, wealth didn't spread across the entire family. And uh, Bertie's uh, parents, as they lived a, a tough life of being agricultural labourers on farmland. But uh, one of the things that young Bertie discovered that he was exceptionally good at was at the sport of golf. And at the age of 14 years and 364 days, so the day before his 15th birthday, Bertie Snowball won his first golf competition, which is uh, called the Leeds Cup. And he uh, won the prize for the uh, best, uh, uh, they were described as apprentice, so the amateur uh, sort of beginners. And um, it was to sort of set the tone for his sporting prowess through the rest of his life. He went on to uh, be very, very prominent in the Yorkshire golf scene. Uh, he broke uh, all sorts of of records and in uh, July 1904 he actually set the new record for the Scarborough golf course where uh, went round the 18 holes in a score of 69 and he was to go on through uh, this uh, this period of between sort of uh, 1910 onwards to become a really very very talented golfer indeed he won numerous tournaments and um, and in 1907 he started playing in the Irish professional championships and um, he got through to the uh, final uh, but was unfortunately uh, beaten in the last uh, three holes of the match and he lost to uh, one of the professionals there. He got married in uh, 1908 and then travelled around the United Kingdom where he worked as a professional in Ireland and Wales, eventually finding himself up in uh, Scotland where he worked at the Carnoustie golf course and uh, he was employed by a man called Bob Simpson who was a, a very famous uh, golf club maker up in Carnoustie and uh, he uh, worked for him um, building uh, or making rather handmade golf clubs out of wood a very skilled and a very talented uh, occupation and Bertie Snowball was to lose his life on the 9th of May 1915 during the fighting at Obears Ridge in the Battle of Obears Ridge and he was serving with the uh, Black Watch at the time and um, like so many of his comrades in that completely futile exercise, he lost uh, his life to German machine guns near to uh, the small French village of Fromel. And his name sits on the war memorial at uh, Carnoustie Golf Club to this day. And it's uh, recorded that um, when he fell, there was a letter in his pocket that uh, had written on the front of it to be posted to my wife in the event of my death. And of course, this Julie did. And he left a wife and three children. But he now, say, rests in peace in the beautiful Latrue Aid Post Cemetery 
Snowball was one of 35 men from Carnoustie who lost their lives during World War One, and the golf club was very good to the widows of the soldiers. They organised a number of tournaments to help raise money for the widows and the families of the soldiers and the men from Carnoustie who'd lost their lives. And to this day, there still stands in the clubhouse at uh, Carnoustie the Snowball Cup, which is awarded, I believe, biennially, Um, to uh, the most talented amateur young golfer to come through the scenes at Carnoustie Golf Club. And I'm sure that Bertie Snowball will be very pleased that his legacy lives on in the sport that he so obviously loved. So thank you for joining me on this uh, slightly quirky look at Christmas and World War One, And uh, I hope you've enjoyed what you've been listening to. And really all that is left for me to do is to wish each and every one of you a very happy and a very peaceful new year. And uh, as we come to the end of 2021, I just want to thank every single one of you who's listened to one of the podcasts over the last 12 months. I think we've really gone from strength to strength in terms of the content we're producing. I've got lots and lots of exciting plans for uh, the remainder of this season of the podcast. And uh, I look forward very much indeed to having your company as we come back with our first episode of Footsteps of the Fallen in 2022. So I wish all of you the very best and season's greetings. And I hope from the bottom of my heart that you all have a very happy and a very peaceful new year. I hope you've enjoyed this latest episode of Footsteps of the Forum with me, battlefield researcher, historian and writer Matt Dixon. And if you'd like to keep updated with what we are up to and what's happening, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter where you can find us at uh, footsteps underscore pod or you can have a look on our Instagram feed which is footsteps of the fallen blog you'll find on Instagram. Uh, We've also got obviously our website which you can find uh, everything to do with the podcast and pictures and uh, a blog and things like that and you can find that at footstepsofthefallen.com And if you have enjoyed what you are listening to and would like to help support the creative process, then please don't uh, hesitate to do so. If you go to our website, footstepsthefallen.com, and look at the page marked Support Us, you can either head to buymeacoffee.com forward slash footstepspod and uh, make a donation there, or you can go to patreon.com footsteps of the fallen and uh, any help or assistance that you may be able to provide would be gratefully received so all it leaves me now to do is to bid you farewell and thank you very much for your company as we continued our journey walking in the footsteps of the fallen it's been a pleasure to have your company thank you and goodbye